hello everyone and welcome to another of our Ed Talks UK podcasts. This time it's me, Mireille McCrailed, Education Services Director for Early Years here at Hearts for Learning. And I'm joined today by the inspirational June O'Sullivan. June is a social entrepreneur and since 2004 she has been the Chief Executive Officer of London Early Years Foundation. Her work at LEAF, as it's fondly known, has been recognised as helping the educational development of socially disadvantaged children in their early years. June is a really vocal campaigner on a number of early childhood education issues. For all of her work, June was awarded an MBE for services to children in London and has authored numerous books to help practitioners and leaders working in the early years. I am delighted, June, that you have joined me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a very kind ent- introduction. <laughs> Not at all. You've done so much, June, for early years. Now, this afternoon, June, um, I thought we would talk about the impact of the pandemic and just some important considerations when planning learning experiences for our young children in the EYFS. And I don't know about you, but I often reflect on my own early childhood experiences. And some of that has definitely played a part in what drives me to educate others on the importance of the early years. So I just wonder what's led you to be such a strong advocate for high quality childcare and and early education? It's It's a great question. And we often think about social entrepreneurs as having to either fix something or redesign something that's touched on themselves. I was a young, very young single parent. And I was really kind of, I don't know, isolated and I didn't quite know what to do. But I was working nights as a psychiatric nurse and I just was exhausted trying to look after my son in the day. And I had a colleague of a of some of the nurses, her mother used to come and sleep in the in the house at night. And I mean, you know, this is this is how we were, I was managing. So somebody told me about this idea of going sending him to nursery for, you know, for a few days a week to give me some sleep. Actually, there was nothing about anything to do with his cognitive development or socialization or anything like that. So we went on a list for a very long time. And then uh, he was just coming up to, I guess he must have been nearly two. And we finally got invited to this nursery. And it was very close to where I lived. And so it it seemed like perfectly brilliant. So I went along. I met this, uh, I suppose you'd call her a practitioner now, and this nursery manager. And uh, the first thing that struck me as odd was I wasn't allowed to settle him. So he cried his little heart out. I didn't think that was right, but I didn't know any better because I was very young. And even though I was working as a psychiatric nurse in some pretty hairy situations, um, as a mum, I was learning as we went along. And so I thought, well, maybe this is what they do, but just didn't feel right. The second day I went back and he was there's a there was a big garden and I could see him on the fence. And so I sort of picked him up thinking, this is something's not right here. I picked him up, went to the door and she started to scream at me about how she had given the place to me. And I was some Irish single parent and, you know, young and stupid and oh, a whole tirade. And the mom in front looked around pretty shocked and said, but 
the child was on the fence. What else was she to do? Now, on reflection, I suppose she was stressed because she couldn't find him and they were rushing around. Mm -hmm. But he was not two years old yet. And I, I, I kind of took all of this abuse, really. And, you know, I could have given this place to a doctor. I remember that distinctly thinking, OK, so I'm a nurse. I don't count for anything. Um, and I went away and thought I can't bring him back there. So, you know, when you're on kind of automatic pilot, I went back the next day and his key worker, as we call them now, our key person, was obviously a kindly lady. And she said to me, oh, she was just upset yesterday. Don't take any notice of her. She doesn't mean it. I said, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't feel right about this. And my child at this point was mildly hysterical at having to be handed over to this person. And so I handed him over and then I changed my mind and I took him back and I never went back there again. And I made my mind up that one day I would do something that would actually change the way we saw nurseries and no one would ever be told that they weren't valued because they were a single parent or they were Irish or they were anything at all. And that every child would be welcomed in in a way that was, you know, valued. But I just knew that I wanted to create a model that was built on the idea that every child would be welcomed, that we'd be the best in class and that those children from disadvantaged backgrounds would be so integrated no one would know because the principle would be it would be accessible affordable and the quality would be extremely high and uh from that on then became the journey to build a leaf model and to create the leaf idea and the name and this pedagogy and all the stuff that went with it and it's still a, an ongoing journey i mean you never stop thinking about things or reviewing things or getting things wrong and then fixing them and then thinking about how you've learned from that and uh, you know, so there's, it's not, there's never a perfect moment, but that was definitely the tipping point. And since then, I've kind of dedicated my life really to this. June, you've got 39 preschools and nurseries in Leaf across London. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it must be a, a wide range of and a diverse range of children and families um, from all walks of life that you're serving. We know that children starting school in the last year have had almost a quarter of their life disrupted by the pandemic. And of course, pre-pandemic, we saw the impact of poverty on young children through language deficit, the huge word gap, limited cultural capital to put it in Ofsted terms. Mm -hmm. um, so now we've had almost two years of disruption with COVID. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could share with, with myself and the listeners some of the ways in which you're seeing this manifest in, in young children, um, you know, how is the impact of COVID presenting itself in, in children in your settings? So during COVID, we kept 15 nurseries open. We roughly supported about 200 children and most of them were parents working as key persons mm. um, in actually mostly in the National Health Service, but some in um, running the bus services and, uh, you know, what support care services actually the kind of people who have never been really valued and actually keep the whole society ticking over. But I was concerned that a lot of our children who didn't quite meet the government's descriptor of what children in need look like. So I was quite concerned about those. And so we had kept real tracks and they were the ones that didn't really engage on Zoom calls and play dates and all the other things that us and the whole of the sector tried to create at speed. So we kept tag on those. And so when in the summer we were allowed for the first return, we really, really pushed for those children to come back. What we found was they were often the most resistant to coming back and we had to really do a lot of community work, which is the seventh strand of our pedagogy anyway 
our multi-generational strand. And so we did quite a lot of work to get them back. A lot of it was to do with poverty, actually. So if you're living on a terribly insecure income and you one of you gets sick, and there's no money and no pension and no backup and no anything, then it's no wonder you'll be highly stressed. So for a lot of those children, they didn't literally leave the house for the entire lockdown. And so they had really high levels of anxiety. Now, part of that was transferred from their parents who were anxious about them getting sick and therefore what would happen to them and the family. And then for some, it was the children had regressed such a degree that they were actually operating about 18 months uh, below their age there. And so there was manifestations of that. Uh, when you unpacked it a bit more, you found a decline in children's personal and social emotional skills, uh, children back in nappies, children not able to use a knife and fork or a, an implement to eat with, uh, children with no sense of control about themselves uh, in terms of their own personal sort of self-regulation, really. The language delay quite significantly, behaviour in line with language delay became more immature and also listening skills were quite limited. And their physical skills, some of them hadn't really been out of their tiny flats for that or that period. And again, just to understand the kind of stress that they were living in, you can kind of understand it. So but their physical skills had also become quite, I suppose, to some degree regressed, really, if, if, if you know what I mean by that. And and that was evident. And we saw a, definitely an increase in some child obesity. So not a great picture. What is the most important thing that our early years educators can do to help children feel safe? Your son, myself, you know, when we're going into settings um, and, and leaving young children there. How can we help them feel safe enough to explore and be curious um, so that they, those practitioners can address any deficit in learning? particularly now compared to that deficit against other generations that have gone before in early education settings? The first thing to do is to be confident enough to slow down. And uh, and I, I get very kind of disappointed, I think, by this obsession with kind of covering off the seven areas of the mm -hmm. curriculum, when actually if you frame it within a pedagogy and that means understanding how those children learn. You can actually don't worry about understanding the world or having to do something around a particular area. Just understand how that child is learning and under, understand how that child is trying to kind of figure out just the day. So, you know, the routine is really important. It, it mustn't be a military routine designed for the staff, but actually a, a routine that gives those those children some sense of safety and order. One of the things we found in the doubling down report from parents was that when the children came back to the nursery, the sense of order and calm was significant and it meant that they slept better at home, that they ate better at home because they were having a day where they, it was punctuated by activities and events and there was an order to it you know and it became a sort of circular support and sometimes people are a bit scathing about routines and and they shouldn't be because children need them children need to have their snoozes children need to have their regularity of their their meals and their access to stuff but at the same time you know 
an experienced early years teacher, and all staff at LEAF are called teachers, an experienced early years teacher can navigate that by following the children's lead and, and just allowing some space. So if you get, if they're all obsessed with the, you know, Ofsted are coming in and the framework, they're sort of trying to cover off everything and therefore nobody can relax and breathe. And that was the really interesting thing for me when COVID was in, you know, at, at its height. So we've done a lot more on music, a lot more on uh, exploration, a lot more on uh, provocations that really encourage children to to develop their own play and and allow that to follow. So we've done a lot more of being allowing the children space and a lot more outside. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And all of those elements, June, around curriculum that you are seeing and, and driving through the practice in LEAF. We need to make sure that we've got this consistency of understanding around what high quality pedagogy looks like. You know, this word and there are practitioners out there or, or teachers or educators, whatever we call them, that early years workforce who have been slightly thrown a bit by oh. this language that is introduced. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but ultimately, what we need to remember is we've got to put the child at the centre of everything that we are mm -hmm. doing. And, and I thought it was fascinating because I joined you a week or so ago in the debate about whether the early years sector is doing enough about childhood obesity. And, and you touched on that as being part of the um, uh, manifestation of, of the pandemic. And you spoke so passionately about mealtimes and the learning benefits mm. of, of that part of the routine that you mentioned. In, in nurseries. And I mean, sometimes these kind of regular routine events can be forgotten parts of, of learning, but they're absolutely crucial and integral to that curriculum, that, that mm. teaching and learning. So just paint us a picture of what it's like for a child in one of your nurseries at lunchtime and what learning you ensure is developed through that daily experience. I think any organisation needs to be constantly reflecting and thinking about it and actually unpacking every element of its delivery. And so it was about, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, I started to think about the chefs and the role of the chefs. And I began to began to think about, you know, often they were an undervalued, underutilised member of the team. You know, many years ago when I was an underage social worker, you know, if you went into the, um, the local authority uh, nurseries, the chef, ran the kitchen with a steel, you know, with an um, iron rod. And if you even went in for a cup of tea, even if she wasn't there, she knew you'd been in there and almost could tell that the mug had been moved and stuff. And so what happened was that there was a kind of like two words. It was a bit like when schools often talk about the schoolkeeper, you know, like that, you know, who's in charge really? Is it the head teacher or the schoolkeeper? Oh, I think you'll find us a schoolkeeper. You know, that kind of stuff. And so I began to think about how do we bring the chef into the team? make them part of the team, you know. And I began to look at some really great practice that I saw amongst my own colleagues and, uh, you know, where some nurseries really had the chef as part of the team. They um, attended all the team meetings. Uh, they opened the door to the parents. They were, you know, the duty manager in one case and now still. So I began to think, you know, what actually is their role then? Is their role simply to go into the kitchen and just cook this food? Or is it actually to be understanding children's nutrition and understand, understanding that they're, you know, they are con contributing to those children's learning? Because I think 
even now there is a view that somehow or other the children come to learn and uh, to experience in early years education and care but somehow or other the meal is just something that happens and mm. nobody really pays attention to it and two of our nurseries um were really stuck at one point and we didn't have a chef and we had to get the food delivered and we were appalled at the standard of stuff the dross that was produced as good food nutrition and the chef then um, said to me, we've got to do something about this. This is just unbelievable. So um, we started to think about recipes and food and we started to look at really interesting ways of presenting the food to the children. And then I started to really think about, well, what's the role of the chef? So we worked together. We always work together on these. And we identified that the chef is a first a member of the team. B, a chef isn't just about cooking. So really, to be really understand the role of children and and how children learn, you need to understand things like portion size. You need to understand about waste. You need to understand about the balance. And I had a big battle with um, actually with a number of people, including Ofsted, about this thing about just giving them fruit and vegetable. And I have no problem with that. But they were getting it so much that actually they were hungry in the afternoon. And I wanted the children to have homemade scones or, you know, a carbohydrate around four o'clock that wasn't bought from the local shop full of sugar, but actually made by our own chefs. And so I was proven right in the end that actually children were having an insufficiency of a carbohydrate and zinc, especially our two year olds who are often starving around four o'clock. Um, plus, we also knew that some children would go home and they would never they wouldn't eat again until they came to us the next day. And so we were also thinking about how do we balance that out and the timing. And we've got the chefs involved in all of this. And actually, there's no qualifications for chefs in early years. I mean, there are what is it? 1.3 million children come to our nurseries and, and settings. And we're, we have people who don't know anything about cooking for them. And yet this is an important factor. And there, you know, we we set the foundations of their of their bones and their, you know, their their physical well-being and what we feed them. And often we're feeding them three meals a day. They come for their breakfast, they come for their lunch, and they come for their tea. So I began to really unpack that and discovered that there wasn't. So you know, I'm a practical kind of girl, and you know, we decided we'd make our own qualification, which we've got now. It's all accredited by passion it's all official and proper you know and that was amazing for me because I worked really closely with the chefs and we also changed their job description so that they do a meet they do a planning activity with the children once a fortnight about the meals that they want they do a weekly activity with the children where they're teaching them to cook in some way we're doing they do much more with the parents now as well and it was interesting because the chefs were panicked out of their minds about this, thinking, <laughs> well, what do we know? But as they began to do more and more of this, they began to realise their contribution was quite significant. And so the chef is now part of the experience for the children. So when they sit to their, their lunch, and I'm very old fashioned about this, it's nicely laid out. Mm -hmm. uh, I use proper cutlery. I avoid plastic if we can. Uh, the, the older children tend to have the restaurant table because uh, they can serve themselves. The children learn to say, serve each other. The staff sit with them and they enjoy the food also. Um, you know, there's proper jugs of water on the table. You know, the whole thing is a nice experience. And they're encouraged to chit chat and to just make it as if they were in a restaurant. Um, mm -hmm. And for a lot of children, they have no experience of that. No. They often don't sit at a table. Um, they often have finger food in the evening. 
Um, and that was very interesting. And our chefs noticed that. What's really come through from you, June, is how we need to keep children right at the heart of that pedagogy. And we need to equip our teams working in earlier settings to really feel confident about harnessing the voice of the child and the parents and carers in their teaching and that curriculum implementation. So I am absolutely looking forward to you joining us at our conference in oh, March. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, I know you're going to be kicking us off and um, talking about uh, pedagogy. Apart, talking about pedagogy, absolutely. <laughs> so, thank you so much for joining me, June. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground um, and we've really got an insight into your ethos and your values, um, and that's been great. Um, the Hearts for Learning National Earliest Conference will explore child development and take a fresh look at the curriculum. It's going to be a lively event with a wide range of earlier specialists, including those that were involved in developing the Birth to Five non-statutory guidance and development matters. It will explore the implications of EYFS reforms and the important aspects of high quality early years provision. So if you've enjoyed listening and would like to hear more from June or find out about our other speakers, then please go to our Hearts for Learning webpage to book on.